And today we're going to be talking about what I shared last week. Chuck Missler called it the most preposterous doctrine in all of Christianity. The only thing it's got going for it is that it's true. And today we're going to be talking about the event that kicks off the most intense period of end times events prophesied in the Bible. It's the event known as the rapture of the church. What is it? When will it happen? How does it happen? We're going to get into all of that. The last time I taught on the rapture was, I believe, when we were studying through the book of Revelation back in the day. That's the last time I did it in detail. And so I went back and checked in my records how long that message was. And it ran an hour and 15 minutes. The greatest, most riveting hour and 15 minutes of the lives of those who were in attendance. And since then, we've learned even more about the rapture and the end times. So we're going to split the teaching up and we're going to cover it in two weeks. There's so many ways to teach this. There's so many angles I could take, but I thought it might be best to begin by talking through how we should approach our study of what the Bible says about the end times. In other words, how we should approach eschatology, the prophecies in the Bible that speak about the last days of the earth. Then I'll explain what the rapture is, and then I'll give a broad overview of end times events so that we can understand where the rapture fits in the timeline of events And then we'll get into our text and begin explaining why we believe the Bible teaches this doctrine of the rapture of the church. And we should be out of here no later than 10 p.m. I'm just, I'm kidding. We're not going to be that long this evening. It's not going to be that long. So first, I want to set the stage by reminding us of a few important ideas that will help us keep an open mind as we discuss this preposterous doctrine of the rapture. These are principles that will help you study the Bible and interpret the scriptures accurately, specifically in the area of end times prophecy. Firstly, it's been well said that if you can believe Genesis 1-1, if you can wrap your mind around Genesis 1-1, you'll have no problem with the rest of the Bible. Genesis 1-1, of course, begins the Bible, and it reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's the point. If you can believe that God made the entire universe, everything that exists, out of nothing, then you'll have no problem when you read about him working other incredible miracles as you make your way through the text of the Bible when he sends plagues on Egypt or parts the Red Sea miraculously. If you believe Genesis 1-1, then you'll realize, well, he made the whole universe out of nothing, so it's not really that big of a deal for him to part the ocean or raise the dead or turn oceans into blood if he wants to. That's not a problem. So write this down. To apply it to today's study, I will put it like this. If God was capable of creating the universe the way he wanted to, then it follows logically that he is equally capable of ending it the way he wants to. If God was able to create the universe the way he wanted to, then logically he can end it the way he wants to. It's that simple. As a Christian, it doesn't make any kind of logical sense to reject a view of the end times because it seems too fantastic, too preposterous. Because it's not more fantastic than God creating the whole universe out of nothing. That's fantastic. We have to examine the scriptures and form our conclusions free of any bias against the fantastic. The beginning of the universe was astonishing and its end shall be no less. Secondly, write this down. We take the biblical text literally unless there is a clear reason not to. We take the biblical text literally unless there's a clear reason not to. Why? Because we take all text and all conversation literally unless there is a clear reason not to. If you come up to me and say, Jeff, do you know where I can get a cup of coffee? My first assumption would be to take your words literally, not to assume that by cup of coffee you really mean the meaning of life. None of us think that way. We all begin with the assumption that the people we're talking to and the words that we're reading should be taken literally. We only take the scriptures allegorically, metaphorically, or as some type of visual language 
when there's a good reason to do so. For example, when the Gospels say that Jesus told them a parable, we are then being told this is a parable, not a factual historical account of an event that happened, but a parable being told by Jesus. We know that because the Bible is telling us that. We don't have to take that parable literally. As we explained in our first point, this seems too fantastic is not a good reason to reject a literal interpretation of Scripture. That's not a good reason. I'm embarrassed to tell my friends this is what I believe. Not a good reason. Seems a little difficult to pull off. Not a good reason. For centuries, biblical scholars made the mistake of assuming that the book of Revelation must be mostly allegorical because it mentioned things like an army of 200 million coming from the east. And at times, since Jesus rose and returned to heaven, there have not been 200 million people on the earth. And so biblical scholars would say this has to be allegorical. There's no way that we could take this literally. If you were with us in our study of Revelation as well, you'll recall that at a certain point, the figure known as Antichrist suffers a near mortal wound, but then comes back from the dead. And you have prophets who are preaching the gospel in Jerusalem who are assassinated and these events are seen and perceived by everyone around the world according to the book of Revelation. People would say how how is that even possible? This cannot be taken literally and yet now we know that China has an army of 200 million and now we know that people will simply watch these things on their phones which they have with them all the time. The lesson from that is that just because something in the Bible seems fantastic, hard to believe, doesn't mean that it shouldn't be taken literally. The more time that I spend studying the scriptures, the more I find myself believing a literal interpretation of what God has said in the areas of prophecy. Third pointer I would share is that good theology, make a note of this, good theology and doctrine work everywhere in the Bible. And this is true of all theology and all doctrine. If it's good, it'll work everywhere in the Bible. Here's what I mean. If a piece of theology or doctrine is true, it will work, it will make sense everywhere that it shows up in the biblical text. It won't work well in the New Testament, but not so well in the Old Testament. It won't work well with Paul, but not so well with Jesus. It'll work well everywhere in the Bible. If you have two views that you're trying to decide between, it's always good to ask questions like, which view works better across the text of the whole Bible? Which view requires me to manipulate the text the least? Which view requires the plainest reading of scripture? Which view requires the least textual gymnastics, for lack of a better term? Many times you might run into a verse that can be interpreted one of two ways. Or or read an article or have a friend who, who rocks your world by saying, well, did you know that this verse can actually be taken this way? If one view of those two fits with everything else in the Bible and the other view creates clashes with everything else in the Bible, guess which one is probably correct? The one that fits with the overall message of the Bible. Good theology and doctrine work everywhere in the Bible. It's a rookie mistake when we're interpreting the scriptures to find one book or one verse, take it out of context and build a whole doctrine around it. You have to look at everything the Bible says about that subject and make sure that it all harmonizes well. That's not an exhaustive lesson in biblical interpretation, which is known as hermeneutics, but those are a few basic principles that, that any of us can apply that I believe will really help you as you study the scriptures, especially biblical prophecy and eschatology, the study of the end times, which is what we're gonna be talking about today. And I also wanted to say this up front. I, I personally... Reject the view that you cannot understand what the Bible says about the end times unless you've got your doctorate in contemporary apocalyptical literature around the first century AD. And there are those who will say that unless you have years and years of higher learning at a university, you've really got no business looking into this stuff. And my problem with that type of thinking is that it implies 
that God has limited understanding of the end times to only the highly educated. It implies that when missionaries go to plant churches and when we share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus, we really might as well be handing out Bibles that have all the texts related to the end times simply edited out and removed because they're not going to be able to understand it anyway. The pinnacle of eschatological writings is the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation begins with this verse. It's on your outlines. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. We're told in the very first verse of the book of Revelation that John the Apostle was given this revelation by Jesus so that the servants of Jesus, you and I, all believers, might be shown things which must shortly take place. So the very first verse in the book of Revelation says that this is for us. Specifically that we might know and understand the things that are going to soon take place. And then it goes on to say also in your outlines in Revelation 1 verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. In other words, do those things that are written in it. For the time is near. Now, you might recall we would say this every week in our Revelation series. I find it very hard to believe that God is saying, church, Believers, saints, I've had John the Apostle record this revelation. It's for you. It's for every believer. In fact, I so want you to read this book that I'm promising a special blessing to everyone who does, just to help motivate you. Not only that, but I want you to do the things that this book tells you to do. And I want you to read it because it has to do with things that are going to happen very, very soon. But here's the thing. It's pretty funny, actually. I've made this book impossible to understand. Isn't that hilarious? And the problem is that that view doesn't make any kind of sense at all. You can't read Revelation 1.1 and Revelation 1.3 and then step away and say, well, the book of Revelation is not really for us to understand. We're told within the first three verses that that's the whole point of it. That's its entire purpose. It's vitally important. In fact, it's so important that the Apostle Paul was teaching this stuff to the new believers in Thessalonica within the first three weeks of their conversion. So whenever someone starts saying, well, you have to spend some time digging into the Greek apocalyptical literature that was prominent at the time that John was writing in order to understand the imagery that he's referring to, I'm not down with that. Because I believe the Bible and Bible prophecy were written for all believers. And if Jesus' selection of the disciples tells us anything, it's that he does not need highly educated men to get his message across. And praise God, you don't need to be highly educated to understand the message of the scriptures, even Bible prophecy. So what is the rapture? What is the rapture? Well, I'll just tell you, I was talking with a friend recently about the Lord from my gym, and uh, she said, well, I was listening to one of your messages, and you mentioned in there that the day to the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day, and mentioned something about us being in the end times. What's that all about? I won't make you show your hands if you'd be terrified in that exact situation. You're like, okay, okay. Short answer for this. And, uh, and I began my answer by saying, I'm going to share with you very plainly about this as though I'm not concerned that you're going to think that I'm crazy. And then I went and I shared with her the overview, much of the overview that we're going to talk about in just a minute. What is the rapture? Well, first you need to know that the church is a collective term that the Bible gives to Christians, those who have placed their faith in Jesus in the church age. The church age started in 33 AD and it's gone up all the way up to our present day. So anyone who became a Christian, became a believer, put their faith in Jesus between 33 AD and now is part of the church. And the Bible also refers to those believers who make up the church as saints. So you're a saint, you're a saint. Next time you get in trouble, just point that out to someone. Just want to remind you, I am a saint. You really are, even though you might not feel like it. And the rapture is the name of a future event 
prophesied in the Bible. Take a look at the description that's on your outline. This is it right here. It's an instantaneous future event prophesied in the Bible in which Jesus removes his church from the earth to meet him and all saints who have died earthly deaths in the clouds or in the air, it says, where they receive resurrected bodies before being led to heaven where they remain with Jesus until the second coming. I know there's a lot in there, but that's what the rapture is. And we're gonna unpack that in a little more detail, but that's the most concise way that I could put it for you. The Bible tells us that only God the Father knows the exact timing of the rapture. Incredibly, the Bible says not even Jesus knows, but God knows the exact time when the rapture is going to take place. But the Bible instructs us to be ready at any moment, at any moment. So where does the rapture fit in the order of end times events? I'm going to give you this broad overview of end times events according to the Bible. Hard to know what to put in, what to leave out, but hopefully this will refresh our memories. And if you're new to this, it will give you a rough sort of broad sense of what's going to happen here. The first domino that had to fall in end times prophecy was Israel becoming a political nation again. After laying out the timeline of the end times that we're talking about right now, Jesus himself said that the generation that sees Israel become a political nation again will not die out until all the end times events have unfolded. And if you want more details about that, I recommend that you listen to the five studies that we did on the Olivet Discourse, which is the name of the message that Jesus taught about the end times in his discussion about that. You can find those on the website and the link is on your outlines. Against all the odds, despite not existing as a nation for 1900 years, despite almost being wiped out by the Holocaust, it happened. Israel became a nation again in 1948, which started the end times clock, so to speak. And so the rapture is going to take place sometime before the last person, I'd suggest the last Jewish person, who was alive in 1948 dies. The rapture is going to happen before the last person who saw Israel become a nation in 1948 dies. So we are on the clock. The next event that the Bible talks about in the end times timeline is the rapture. Could happen right now or it could happen in a few decades. Again, we're to be ready at any moment. After the rapture takes place, there will be understandably chaos on the earth, if you can imagine. Planes will lose their pilots mid-flight. Cars will crash all over the place. Ships will lose their captains. Hundreds of millions of people will vanish from the earth in an instant. We were talking about this in our Bible study the other day. It's possible all children will vanish from the earth in an instant. A few things will begin to happen almost immediately. The good news is that one of those things will be the greatest revival the world has ever seen. And here's why. Because anyone who's ever heard anything about the rapture will suddenly realize that the Christians they knew in their life had been telling them the truth. And they'll go, oh my goodness, that crazy guy, that crazy woman was telling me the truth. I got to find a Bible. Where's that, that Bible they gave me? Where's that USB stick? What was that website again? How, I got to find out what's going on. And they'll turn to Jesus and be saved because they'll realize what's happened. That person that you've shared the gospel with, who seems so hard-hearted and not open at all to it, will suddenly be aware that you're part of the group that just disappeared. And they'll go, I gotta understand what's going on, and they'll turn to the Lord. The bad news is that while Satan is the god of this world right now, his power is restrained. It's limited by the presence of the church on the earth. Why? Because inside of every single believer dwells the Holy Spirit. So basically everywhere that believers are, just physically, Satan's power is diminished. It's limited. When the church is removed from the earth in an instant, Satan's power is going to dramatically increase on the earth and he's going to be able to do things he's never been able to do before. All those people who say things like, 
Man, imagine the society that we could build if we weren't being slowed down by those conservative Christians. Imagine the the laws we could pass, the progress we could make if we weren't slowed down by these outdated morals. All of those people will get their wish. There'll be no Christians slowing things down. And so the world will fall into evil to a degree never seen before. With the church out of the way, Satan will be able to propel the stratospheric rise of a very specific man on the world political stage, the one commonly known as Antichrist. Antichrist will be a beloved political figure. He will be viewed as a savior in the years of turmoil following the rapture. He'll begin his career in Europe and through various political machinations, he will emerge as the head of a revived Roman Empire. He'll rule the countries, in other words, that used to make up the Roman Empire. It'll sort of be like a bigger European Union with him at the top. And he'll be able to do this because under the power of Satan, he will do incredible things like broker peace in the Middle East between the Jews and the Arabs, something that hasn't been possible for 4,000 years. He'll do it. Seemingly, it looks like the Bible tells us that he will rebuild the Jewish temple on the Temple Mount next to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and they'll get along. He'll make it possible. As Antichrist rises to prominence, the Bible tells us that a seven-year time period will begin. That time period is known as the 70th week of Daniel. If you want to know why it's called the 70th week of Daniel, you'll need to listen to our study on Daniel 9, and I put the URL for that on your outlines as well. When the seven-year period kicks off, God begins pouring out his judgment, his wrath on the earth that rejected his son Jesus, and that continues to reject his son Jesus. And to put it mildly, really really bad stuff starts happening, but it's still only the first wave of God's judgment on the earth. Halfway through this seven-year time period, after three and a half years, 1,260 days to be precise, Antichrist is going to change gears. He's going to stop identifying himself as a political leader, as a uniting world force. He's going to enter the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, And he's going to set up a throne for himself in the most holy part of that temple. And he's going to demand that all of his citizens worship him as God. He's going to require every one of his citizens to take a symbol, a mark of allegiance to him. This mark, known in culture and in the word, is the mark of the beast will be on one's hand or on the side of one's forehead. And we're told that you'll not be able to buy or sell anything without this mark. If you refuse to take this mark, you will be beheaded. If you choose to take this mark, you will be damned for all eternity. You'll be choosing between God and Satan, and the Bible makes it clear that everyone who makes that choice will know what they're doing. No one will think, oh, I thought I was just getting like some new technology. They will understand that they're choosing to reject God or follow Satan. They'll know that. Those who have turned to Jesus following the rapture, and the Jewish people will refuse to take the mark. In response, Antichrist will viciously kill and persecute them. The persecution will be so intense in the back half of the seven years that two out of every three Jews on earth will be killed. The Jews will quickly realize that this Antichrist figure is his no savior. He's not their Messiah. He's an even worse embodiment of the spirit that drove Hitler. And that's why for the Jews, this time, the back three and a half years of those seven years is referred to in the Bible as the great tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of Israel's trouble. Also, at the halfway point of the seven years, God's wrath turns up to 11. There's no other way to say it. It's literal hell on earth. These are the worst days that planet earth will ever see by a mile. But God continues moving on the earth during the great tribulation. He raises up 144,000 Jewish evangelists, Jewish Billy Grahams, men who cannot be killed by Antichrist or Satan, and they go out throughout the earth preaching the gospel. 
Incredible supernatural things happen like an angel flying around the skies of the earth preaching the gospel so everyone on the earth hears it and everyone gets to make a choice and yet most will still refuse to repent. The Lord will also in the great tribulation move his people, the Jews, out of danger in Israel and away to a place of safety from Antichrist. Most likely the ancient Jordanian city of the Nabataeans known as Petra. And so there, towards the end of the Great Tribulation, they will be in siege. They will be hiding. They'll be protected by God, but no idea what they're going to do. They're safe, but they can't leave. They can't move. When it seems like they're just waiting to die and all hope is lost, Jesus returns to the earth with all his saints. His church that left the earth as mere mortals will return with him to the earth in resurrected glory, new bodies coming with the king. And while Jesus came the first time as the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for our sins, he will return as the Lion of Judah, the conquering king of all the earth. There will be no battle. Any resistance will be destroyed by the word of his mouth. He'll destroy Antichrist. He will imprison Satan. The Jews at that time will look upon Jesus and they will recognize him as their Messiah. Their eyes will be opened to see him. They will repent for missing him the first time. They will repent for calling for his crucifixion and their relationship with the Lord will be restored and the whole nation of Israel will be saved. This return of Jesus to the earth with all his saints, with the church, is known as the second coming. As Jesus sets up his throne in Jerusalem, he will return the earth to an Eden-like state and we'll all experience a perfect world ruled by a perfect king. We will get to see what the earth was like before we all messed it up. And it will be this way for a thousand years in what's known as the millennial kingdom. At the end of the millennium, Satan will be released from his prison in order to give a choice to those who are on the earth. For you see, there will be billions of people born on the earth during the millennium. The sons and daughters of those who survived the great tribulation and went into the millennium in human bodies, them and their children and their children and their children. Those billions of people will only have ever experienced a perfect world ruled by a perfect king. But God will give them a choice. And when he does, unbelievably, some of them will side with Satan. And this will disprove the idea that man is inherently good. Or the idea that we would all be good if we were only raised by the right parents. Or we'd all be good if we were only raised in the right environment. This will prove conclusively that if we have the choice to rebel, we'll take it every time. Those who choose to rebel will gather for a final battle incredibly. They will seek to destroy Jesus with tanks and planes and missiles and bullets. This will be the famous battle of Armageddon, although again the term battle is a misnomer. There'll be no battle. Jesus destroys them in an instant again. After this comes the final judgment of all those who have rejected Jesus, including Satan. They are eternally separated from God and his saints. The universe comes to an end and God creates a new heaven and a new earth and we go forward into what the Bible calls the ages to come which will contain glory and mystery and wonders which we cannot even begin to fathom. No, it's not going to be as good as you're imagining. It's going to be better. It's going to be better. And that's how it's all going to go down. Well, now that we got the introduction out of the way, we can get into the text. Like I said, no later than 10 p.m., no later than 10 p.m. You will recall that Timothy had visited Thessalonica around five and a half months after Paul and Silas were forced to flee the city, and he had brought a report back to Paul. And Timothy had reported that the Thessalonian believers were growing increasingly concerned because They had loved ones who were dying under Roman persecution and they themselves were under the daily risk of being martyred for their faith and they were wondering things like, what's happened to all the believers who have died over these last few months? What happens to us if we die before Jesus comes for us in the rapture? Do we miss out on heaven and being with the Lord? Have our loved ones who have passed away missed out on heaven because they didn't survive all the way up to the rapture? So Paul begins to speak to their concerns in verse 13 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. 
He says in verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That term just means died. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So Paul begins by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant about eschatology. I don't want you to be ignorant about God's plans for the end times. And I have to point out the obvious that this is tragically ironic because if there's one topic in the Bible today that churches generally don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole, it's the end times and talking about it. And yet Paul says, I don't want you, brethren, believers, to be ignorant about eschatology. He goes on in verse 14 and he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so he's saying if you can believe that, then believe this, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. In other words, those who have already died as believers on the earth. So write this down and we'll talk about it. Paul assures the Thessalonians and us that when we are united with Jesus, we will also be reunited with all believers who have died before us. When we're united with Jesus, we will also be reunited with all believers who have died before us. How's that going to work? Well, Paul explains in verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Would you underline by the word of the Lord? This is what Paul is doing. He's name dropping God so that we all understand, guys, this is not my opinion. This is not a Paul has some thoughts on this situation. This is what God says. You can bet your life on this. You can take this to the bank. This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So we will by, if we're alive on the earth, we're not going to go be with the Lord before those believers who have already died. So the first thing I want you to notice, though, is Paul says clearly that there will be believers alive on the earth when the coming of the Lord takes place. In other words, there will be a final generation of the church on the earth. There will be a final generation. But Paul clarifies that those believers who are still alive on the earth, when Jesus comes for them, will not be with the Lord before. They won't precede those believers who have already died. Verse 16 for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Will you underline in the air? And then underline this, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort, underline comfort one another with these words. So he says those believers who have already died on the earth before the rapture will experience their resurrection first. They'll receive new, eternal, resurrected, perfect bodies and they'll join the Lord in the clouds. That phrase for all we know simply means the heavenly places. It's another dimension that's not on earth. It's not like 10,000 feet above the surface of the earth or 50,000 feet. It's another dimension. It's up, we know that, but we also know it's another dimension. Then those believers who are on the earth will experience their resurrection. They'll receive their new bodies as they leave the earth to join those believers who have already died and the Lord Jesus in the air, in this heavenly dimension. Now whenever the Bible is redundant, this is a good principle, we talk about this often, whenever the Bible is redundant, it means that the Holy Spirit really wants to get our attention. And I just want to make sure that we notice how intentional the text is in telling us that we'll meet the Lord in the clouds, and then he says right after that, in the air. My point being that the Holy Spirit really wants us to know that this event will not take place on the earth. He wants to be really clear about that. We will be leaving the earth for this event. So write this down. Scripture is clear that the church, all saints, those who have died and those who are still alive, will meet Jesus in the clouds or in the air and not on the earth. The Bible's absolutely clear that the church will meet Jesus in the clouds, in the air, and not on the earth. And from that moment on, all believers will be with the Lord 
forever. This is Paul describing the rapture of the church. Now you might be wondering, what will our resurrected bodies be like? Well, our example is the first man to receive a resurrected body, the one Paul called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first one to truly rise from the dead. It's Jesus himself, so write this down. Our resurrected bodies will be like Jesus' body following his resurrection. Our resurrected bodies will be like Jesus' body following his resurrection. After rising from the dead, we read that Jesus had a body that was fully physical. In fact, he proved to his disciples and other witnesses that he was not a ghost by doing something you could only do with a physical body by eating actual food and allowing the disciples to touch the scars of his wounds in his hands and in his sides. But his body was, was also infinitely superior to our physical bodies. Our physical bodies operate in three dimensions as far as we know, but Jesus' body was clearly operating in more, more dimensions than that. We know this because Jesus' resurrected body can do things like move through walls and teleport, appear and disappear. Jesus was recognizable in his resurrected body, but, but it took a minute. When you read the gospel accounts, you get that. They could recognize him, but it took a minute because he was the fully glorified fully perfected best version of himself as we're going to be. So, so think of it this way, when you and I see each other in resurrected bodies, it's gonna take a minute for us to recognize each other. It'll take a minute because it'll be shocking to see some of us with hair and six packs, but it's gonna take a minute, but we'll still recognize each other. When we're saved, our spirits are made new, our spirits are resurrected, but we're still stuck in this fallen, dying, earthly body and that creates this conflict between our flesh and our spirit that lasts the length of our earthly days. Our resurrected bodies mean that our spirits will finally have a new vessel and the conflict between the two will be over. So not only will you have a resurrected new spirit but you'll have a resurrected new body. So our flesh and our spirit will finally operate in harmony and we'll actually have a flesh that will do and want to do the same things that our spirit wants to do. And I think we have, we have no idea, we cannot even conceive of the rest that is going to come with having a body and a spirit that are at peace with each other instead of at war with each other. There's gonna be no internal conflict of any kind within us. And when I say that Jesus' resurrected body is our example, I mean that in the absolute truest sense of the phrase. John the Apostle put it plainly and shockingly when he wrote, it's on your outlines, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, in other words, when we see Jesus, underline, we shall be like him. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. As crazy and as scandalous as it sounds, when we arrive in the presence of Jesus, we will be made like him. And I always like to describe it this way. When we tell people, Jesus is my brother, they won't be like, are you sure? You sure, really? They'll actually say, oh yeah, I see the family resemblance. I see the resemblance. Our eternal future is more glorious than our broken earthly bodies can handle. We need an upgrade. I don't care how good looking you think you are, you need an upgrade for eternity. Our resurrected bodies are gonna be fit for the future that God has in store for us in the ages to come because we're gonna need an upgrade just to have the capacity to withstand, the capacity to comprehend and take in the glory of God because we're gonna see him face to face. I can't wait to see Jesus. I can't wait to be made like him. It's gonna be awesome. And I wanna try and open our understanding a little bit as it relates to the issue of time. There are, there are things that the Bible is clear about. And I always say the things that the Bible is clear about, those are the things that the Lord wants us to know. Those are the things that he feels we need to know. Other details are sometimes left out or only hinted at, and it can be fun to speculate about those details, 
as long as we're honest about the fact that we're doing just that, we're speculating. And I want to proactively clear up any potential confusion about an issue known as soul sleep. Because some people throughout the centuries would read Paul's description of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians and they'd say, well you see, Jeff, believers who died before the rapture clearly go into some sort of soul sleep, some sort of resting state, and and they wait in that state before they are resurrected at the time of the rapture by Jesus. That's clearly what Paul is saying. However, in 2 Corinthians 5, these verses are on your outline, Paul writes about the confidence we can have that we will receive resurrected bodies in the future. And he says this, he says, so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And then he says, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Very simply, Paul says that if you're in your earthly body, then you're not physically with the Lord. But if you're not in your physical body and your earthly body is dead, then you're physically with the Lord in that better place. Paul is making the point there, there's only two states that the believer can be in. There's no third state where you are in some sort of suspended animation, absent from the body and also absent from the Lord. That confusion has historically only arisen because people have been confused about the use of the term sleep that Paul uses as a synonym for death. So now you might be saying, well, well, okay, Jeff, that makes sense that you can only be one of these two things, alive in your earthly body and away from the Lord, or dead in your earthly body and with the Lord. That, that makes sense. But then how come Paul says that at the moment of the rapture, the dead in Christ will rise first? Doesn't that mean they've been lying dead up to that point? Well, if we hold that view, then we contradict the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. So as good Bible students, we need to ask if there's an explanation that harmonizes everything that the Bible says about this. And while, while we don't know the specifics of this issue, I just want to point out a possibility. And I'm not doing this to say this is definitely how it will work. I'm sharing this so that we will realize and be reminded that there are many ways for the Lord to accomplish this without contradicting his word. We have no idea how time will work in heaven. We have no idea how time works in these heavenly dimensions, the place that Paul refers to as in the clouds or in the air. We know that God is viewing all of time at the same time to the extent that he is, for lack of a better description, in all of time, all the time. God is not only omnipresent geographically, but he's omnipresent in the sense of time. And I share that to posit that it is entirely possible that every saint, every New Testament believer who has died, goes immediately to meet the Lord in the clouds at the moment of the rapture. We experience time from from a linear perspective, one event after another. But the dimension that's in the clouds might be somewhere completely off our timeline. If you imagine a line of time, the heavenly places might not even be on that line, might be somewhere completely different. This would allow people to leave our linear timeline at any point and yet arrive at this moment in the air, in the clouds, at the same time. Wherever you leave on the line, you arrive at this point at the same time, instantaneously and simultaneously. Now, I'm not saying that's how it will happen. I'm pointing that out as a possibility so that we realize it's no problem For the Bible to say that at the moment we die, we go to be with the Lord, and yet all saints who have died are resurrected at the same time. There's no conflict, there's no contradiction, there's no problem in there for the Lord. It's also possible that these heavenly places are on the same linear line as ours, but God just makes it so that wherever you die, you go immediately there. Wherever you die on the line, you go right there. That's easy for the Lord. That's not impossible at all. So I don't, again, share that to say this is how it will happen or this is how it will happen, but just to make us realize there's a bunch of ways this could happen that we're not even considering and there's not conflict here. When you die, if you're a believer, 
you go straight to that moment of the rapture. You go right there with all the other saints who have died. And we'll also find out that immediately, instantaneously, you are with all believers who have been raptured from the earth. No conflict, no problem. Paul talks about this in his first letter to the Corinthians. And he says, behold, I tell you a mystery on your outlines. We shall not all sleep. In other words, we won't all die earthly deaths. There will be a final generation, but we shall all be changed. Even though we won't all die earthly deaths, we will all receive resurrected bodies. Now pay attention here. How long will this transformation take? How long will the process take for all believers, those who have died and those who have not, to receive their resurrected bodies? Get this. Paul says it will all take place in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So what I suggest to you is that while saints who have already died will receive their resurrected bodies before those saints who are still alive on the earth at the time of the rapture, the entire process for both groups, believers and saints who have already died receiving their resurrected bodies first and believers who are on the earth being raptured and receiving resurrected bodies, that whole process, all of that is gonna take place according to the Bible in the twinkling of an eye in an instant, just like that, all of it. I wanna wrap up with this. Take a look back at 1 Thessalonians 4.18. After explaining the rapture to the Thessalonian believers, after explaining that their loved ones will be with them in the clouds when we meet Jesus face to face, Paul says, therefore, he says, in light of this, comfort one another with these words. You see, eschatology, contrary to what even the modern church will tell you, eschatology and studying the end times in the Bible is not supposed to confuse you it's not supposed to scare you or, or freak out the believer. It's supposed to be a source of comfort for the believer. And here in chapter four, write this down. Our comfort is that at the rapture, we will be reunited with every believer who has died, including our loved ones. That's our comfort. The scriptures promise that at the rapture, we will be reunited with every believer who has died including our loved ones. That's really going to happen. It's really gonna happen. That's why Paul says, I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. When someone you love passes away, he says, I don't want you to mourn like they're gone forever. Like people who don't know the Lord mourn, who have no hope, who say, I can't believe I'll never get to see them again, never get to hold them again, never get to see their smile. He says, make sure you don't mourn like that. You're allowed to miss them, but you haven't lost them. You know exactly where they are. Not only do you know exactly where they are, but you know exactly when you're gonna be with them again. And you know exactly where you're gonna be with them again. We're allowed to grieve when a believer we love passes away, but we're not allowed to grieve like those who have no hope, because we do, because we do have hope. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes on to write, speaking of us and our bodies, he says, for this corruptible, this corruptible body must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, when we receive our resurrected bodies at the rapture, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? 
O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. As we wait for our king, and stay busy with his work. Don't get tired of serving. Don't get tired of loving. Don't get tired of forgiving. Don't get tired of praying. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Don't miss part two of our study on the rapture that we're going to do next week. We're going to look at some more scriptures that will give us some more details about this. We're going to look at the differences between the rapture and the second coming. And then we're going to tackle the most common objections people have with the doctrine of the rapture. It's going to be helpful. It's going to build your faith. As we're going to be saying for a while as we go through Thessalonians, the king is coming. He's coming soon. Adjust your plans accordingly. Adjust your life accordingly. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word and, and thank you that you desire it to be to us a source of comfort. Father, thank you that you've shared these things with us because you love us and because from your perspective, when you love someone, you share your future plans with them. You want us to know how this is all gonna happen, how it's all gonna go down. You don't just want us to know so that we won't be scared, but you actually want us to know so that we can be comforted and have peace that as the world goes through the trauma of death and separation, we would not be like the world. We would not have to fear death. We would not have to mourn as those who have no hope because we do. Father, you've shared these things with us so that we can live wisely right here and now and not waste our lives. So Father, help us to be good stewards, to be wise stewards of the information that you've shared with us in your word. Help us to live profitably in a way that honors you and makes the most of the time that you've given us on this earth. May we live for your glory. May we not grow tired or weary of doing your work because, Lord, you tell us it's not in vain. It is not in vain. Thank you, Lord, that you have robbed death of its power and you've won the victory, and we get to share in it. Thank you for the hope that only you can give, Jesus. We trust you and we love you. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.